never missing. Back-to-back -back 65s on the weekend for Gemma Drybra. And she is your 2022 Toto Japan Classic champion. Hello, this is the Bunker Podcast in association with Callaway. Michael McEwen here. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. Another hour or so of golf chat coming your way. Tons in this episode. Absolutely tons. And it's a football-free zone today. Thank you very much, Mr. Ritchie. Bunker editor Bryce Ritchie sitting across the table from me, looking quite happy. He's just decided it's a football-free zone for just now. Well, that's fine. Better believe it. It is a golf podcast after <laughs> all. <laughs> yes. That's a good is. point. Is, yes. No football, thank you very much. Oh, actually, no, there is a bit of football coming later on, but you don't know that yet. Ah, ah, yes. I like it. Yes. Oh, I know what this is. <laughs> this is a McEwen classic coming up. It is a McEwen classic. How are yeah. you doing? You have a good weekend? I had a fantastic weekend. Mm -hmm. I had a Mother India, which means every weekend is successful when you have a Mother <laughs> India. For those who don't know, Mother India is hands down the best Indian restaurant yeah, and, in the world. And you know what? It was it was all right. It wasn't it wasn't on its usual level. Really? I was a little bit surprised. But um, it was a takeaway, so... He didn't sit in? Didn't sit in. I, <laughs> so for those listening, I believe you sat in on Mother India by yourself on Friday night. Yeah. Uh, look, you know, Table for one. Yes. I've done that. You know yourself, last week was a bit of a week. It was yes. a, a, a very busy week. And when Friday night arrived, my wife and daughter were away. And I thought, I'm going to go and get an Indian. I did. And then I thought, actually, saw it. I'm sitting in. I need just, I need a bit of space. Where bit I can of just Michael sit, time. A bit of Michael, Michael time, time. Where I can sit at a table, eat fish pakora, eat a lamb karahi, and play Wordle. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. In the middle of it, I thought, oh no, this ain't great. Yeah. And it was particularly bad when the waitress came over with my main to put it down. And there's me, still with my jacket on, playing Wordle, struggling. Yeah. And she just like, there you go. There's your main. I, I couldn't resist. I turned and said, is this the most pathetic thing you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> Sorry for your loss. You're the best bit is. Yeah. She didn't deny it wasn't. Yeah, She's like, yeah. oh, it's fine. I know. Like, oh, so it is the most pathetic thing. I know. It's and it sad. occurred to me because I was quite enjoying my meal on my own. And it occurred to me that no one came over to check. Is everything all right with your, your meal? You know how they do that? They come up and they say, is everything couple? okay? Yeah, yeah. With you, and you're on your own, who cares? When you're on your own, I think they basically just conclude everything's not okay. Yeah. He's here on his own. I'll so. just leave him alone. Yes. Yeah, I've been in Mother India Moan and then gone to a concert after and realise when you sit down, oh, no. I stink. <laughs> <laughs> I stink of chilli garlic chicken. What concert was it? Tommy Emmanuel at the Royal Concert Hall. So it was a quiet acoustic gig. And all, all I could just sense was the aroma of onions and garlic. Oh. You think, oh no, this is bad. People so never in the front again. row going, Tommy hasn't washed the yeah, on somebody, somebody stinks in here. That's me. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but yes, if you ever get the chance, if you're in Glasgow, go to Mother India. That's that's not an ad. That's just a friendly plug. For I wish it a, was a an ad. Well done. I wish it was an ad. I'll ask the question. Okay. We'll get the sales team on the case. Do a contra. Good idea. Fireworks night at the weekend, is that a big thing in the, the Ritchie family? My wee boy went, I'm not interested. Why is that? I'm just not that bothered. Doesn't really do it for me, but he went with his pal and thought it was great. We didn't. Well, as I said, my wife and daughter were away. I went and met up with them at Glen Devon, which is about 10 minutes drive from Glen Eagles. 
on Saturday night. I joined nope. them. Never heard of that place. You know when you're driving up to Glen Eagles, you take the turn off right beside the Shell Garage, you mm-hmm. go up that slip road and you turn left in Glen Eagles, there's 100 yards up, mm-hmm. turn right instead and drive for 10 minutes. Ah. Right out in the middle. So basically, see the big Glen that you see when you're standing Glen, on the first. Glen, is that called Glen Devon? I think it might be. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought that was so, called Glen Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> might be right. Actually. I think it'd be right. Yeah. It's a Glen anyway. And so we were slap bang in the middle because the dog is absolutely terrified of fireworks. So ah, well, my cat doesn't bother. No, honestly, you can set a bomb off in my house. My cat wouldn't even wake up. Not interested. Could be deaf though. Maybe that's it. Yeah. He's not. Lots to cover this particular episode. Let's start with some good news for a change, Mr. Ritchie. A bit of success to, to comment upon. Gemma Dreiberer, young Scots golfer, winning on the LPGA, winning the Toto Japan Classic. This is one for you. You, you like your, your sponsors, as we discovered last week. <laughs> Toto. What, what, what's that? Uh, well, they were quite a successful band in the 80s. <laughs> and they've... Made so much money from royalties that they've moved into golf sponsorship. And I, I, I think Steve Lukather, I think, was the guitarist in Toto, who incidentally wrote the guitar in, or played the guitar in Billie Jean. Oh, really? Yes. Well, there you go. I did not know that. They're the ones that I hope did I've the song right. Africa. I think so, right? yeah. I doubt it was them. I, I, I can't see... Uh, a, a rock band sponsoring an event in Japan on the LPGA. No. As nice as that sounds, but I believe instead Toto, a quick Google seems to suggest it's sanitary ceramics from Japan. Innovative sanitary ceramics with Japan's high hygiene and quality standards for your luxury bathroom. What? Stuff in the bathroom? Sanitary ceramics? So in part in uh, direct competition with Kohler? I would guess, yeah. Okay. Anyway, Toto. They sponsored the Japan Classic on the LPGA and Gemma Dreibra came through and won quite comfortably in the end. It's her first win on the LPGA and it's the first Scottish win on the LPGA for over a decade. Excuses whilst we go a little bit parochial here, but that is fantastic news, Bryce, isn't it? It's fantastic news for, for Gemma, never mind us. Yeah. I am delighted for her. I think she's been going at it for a few years now and... We, knew, we do know the money in the women's game is nowhere near what it should be. But I think she got something in the region of $230,000, which will settle a few bills. I dare say. Gives her a card, gives her a bit of security. Mm-hmm. But yeah, for her, just delighted. I think that's a phenomenal achievement. And we, I know we'll highlight why it's over a decade that we haven't had a Scottish winner in the LPGA, but we've not really had a huge amount of Scottish players in the LPGA I can only think of a small handful so she's an elite company put it that way we've been kind of crying out for somebody to pick up the baton from Katrina Matthew in Scotland because she carried it for so long and and did so well carrying it is it unfair to expect hope that Gemma can fill that void now that she's got that place yeah I mean we we're always looking for more players to come through, but it is a bit unfair to ask her to fill those shoes because Katrina's a major runner. Saw him cup legend. She's won in the LPGA. She was a big star in the LPGA. So it is unfair to ask somebody to come in and fill those shoes, but I don't think anyone really is. We just want we just want more players in, on, on that circuit doing well. Put it this way, there isn't a huge number of English players on that circuit no, doing well. Yeah, it's very true. There's been some big stars who got a lot more media attention in England than our stars do up here, uh, which has nothing to do with us, by the way. 
they they haven't exactly set the world on fire in the LPGA, and they're 15, 20 times bigger than us. So, and they've had a lot more funding. So, I think we I always think we do quite well, but obviously we do need more female Scottish professional golfers. And I've had a lot of insight into the development performance squads in the last 15, 20 years when it comes to females and it's not been great there's never been we've not had the volume of players to come out and compete you know you need big numbers in order to look at american college system mm-hmm. it's just a conveyor belt but not all of them are calling morikawas you know but the more you have the more competition you spread the more likelihood you'll have someday pop up and you'll get a few players if you don't have enough come through it's an uphill battle straight from the start and that's the way it's been the last 20 years I think at this point it'd be only right to give a, a bit of a hat tip, if you like, to Justin Rose, Kate Rose, because the Rose Ladies series was actually a vital part of Gemma's development. She lost pretty much anywhere to play, as a lot of players did, but she had nowhere really to play during the pandemic. That was created. She won a few times on it as well, so she got used to the winning habit, and now she's converted that into one in the LPGA. It just goes to show the importance of giving people opportunities and giving them the chance to win and to get the sensation of what it's like. You look at her back nine yesterday. It was absolutely unreal. Yeah, and our weekend, our, our, the golf she played in the weekend was superb. That, that's what you need to do to win at the top level. And you're absolutely right about the Rose Lady series because that's a, the equivalent of what we're talking about. And I'm not saying it's the same level, whatever, but it's equivalent of what happened with the Euro Pro Tour. Yeah. If you take that away... It makes it harder for people at that level to get some competitive golf. Now, I do think there was some of the the girls and the Rose Ladies were of a better standard than you would say Euro Pro Tour because they were moving down from the LET and so on. Mm-hmm. There's you know so on and so forth. But yeah, that that's been clearly been good for her. But it's how she, as the old saying goes, Michael, how she kicks on. Ah, oh, love a cliche. Love it. Three hundred thousand pounds. Sorry, $1,000 she got for that win. So you're right, about 200 grand when you convert it. Look at the quality of the field as well. I mean, there's Lynn Grant, who is a world number one in waiting, potentially just a, a matter of shots behind. Ataya Titico, the world number one, finished in a tie for 10th. Carlotta Saganda. It's not as if she was playing against a field of, with respect, nobodies. She was taking on some of the best yeah, players yeah. in the world and beating them, which is very important. Of course, I'm going to do the thing that we always do at this point when a, a European does well, whether in the men's or women's game, and there's a big match on the horizon. Solheim Cup candidate? <sighs> why not? You know, why not aim high? You know, I think Suzanne Peterson will want winners in her team. You forget Suzanne Peterson's the captain of things, don't you? That's going to be fireworks. Yeah, I love the Solheim. I think the Solheim's a really, it's a really energetic event. There's mm. a lot of needle, and I, I, I hate to say this, but a lot of dislike in the Solheim <laughs> Cup, which is the way it should be. <laughs> I like that. You there, want rivalry, don't you? There's some quite nitty-gritty going on behind the scenes at Solheim, and Gemma does not fit, fit that mold <laughs> at all. <laughs> but I think that might be quite might be quite a good thing for her to get involved in, and it gives her something to shoot for. Mm-hmm. Why not? Suzanne must be delighted. There's Charlie Hull, Jodie Ewart-Shadoff, and now Gemma, all winning in the LPG in recent weeks. So Solheim can't come quick enough, to be completely honest with you. Well, I'm, I'm going to touch on it very quickly because we said last week that we felt like that was it done, even though we know it's not. But a, a quick one on Liv because Rory McIlroy made some interesting comments. There's a change over the weekend. Rory hasn't been shy in speaking about Liv, but this was a bit of a pivot, if you like. 
He's calling for compromise between the PGA Tour and Live. Now, we have to stress that this is coming from an interview that he did with an Italian golf magazine. So some bits may have been lost in translation, who knows. But he did say that he thinks there's no more time to waste and that for the good of the game, they need to find a way to coexist. Given everything that Rory said about Liv Bryce, given his position on the Players Advisory Council and the PGA Tour, is this a surprise that he said that? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a slightly off-the-cuff comment. I'm not sure he was fully aware of what he was saying because... I don't think Jay Monaghan will like those comments. He does not. He is ab- They are not interested in coexisting. Oh, absolutely not. And I think Rory's uh, potentially that's a. I didn't mean to say it like that. Or I think lost in t- translation. Yes, yeah. I think that is a. I don't buy that for a second because there's absolutely no suggestion whatsoever from the PGA Tours camp that they want to coexist. Not at all. And Rory is the mouthpiece for that. He's right at the heart of the. The problem that the PGA Tour face, he knows on the players' advice. He heads the players' advisory mm-hmm. council, doesn't he? Well paid for it, too. Yeah, <clears throat> and um, we dig in there. That's good. Oh, just letting people know the context. Yeah, and uh, Monaghan will be clearly making Rory and his peers aware that this is an evil empire that they need to stay <laughs> away from. So Rory's not going to turn around two months and go, it'd be great if we could all work together. I suspect he was talking about something to do with qualifying or world ranking points in something, potentially. But those quotes on their own, out of context, that's a classic case of, I think think he was taking it out of context. I actually think you might be right. And I think that's one of those ones where Google Translate has let him down badly. But nonetheless, that is what comes back when you <laughs> punch his comments into Google Translate. Yeah. I wonder if it's just an Italian golf journalist thinking that's... I think that's what he said. No one will notice. <laughs> <laughs> Forza Rory. Oh, shit. But uh, yeah, I, I do agree. I, I don't... I'm, I'm surprised, and I'll be surprised if they're true, because of all the people to suggest that now's the time for peace and compromise and let's hug it out, Rory would be the last person I would have expected to say that. Mm-hmm. Maybe, though, he's just seen the way that the wind's blowing. You know, with the talk of players that are going to be jumping to live, potentially. Shoffley's been mentioned. Cantley's been mentioned. Maybe he's seen this bleed that he expected to stop months ago isn't about to stop anytime soon. Yeah. He's just thinking, yeah, I've called this a little bit wrong. Maybe. Well, there was an ac- a live account last night that said Xander and uh, Patrick were off-ski. So whether that's going to be true or not. Yeah. There's the old account that says, I've never been wrong before. But there's a first time for everything, isn't there? <laughs> I, I do love those accounts and I absolutely refuse to to credit them simply or to use what they say as as fact because, let's face it, stick stick your face and name to it and, and then we'll talk. Right. You know, it's very... I could set up an account tomorrow, particularly in this Elon Musk world and call it Live Golf Facts, for example, and just start spouting nonsense. Very easy to do. But the groundswell of opinion that isn't coming from that account. It was The Guardian, I think, that first reported that that Cantley and Shoffley could be going. Seems more likely than not at this point in time. And I think it will ha- if they are, it will happen in the next few weeks because I think Greg Norman said he wants it all done before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Settled tour for the new season. So what Rory's saying then, again, let's, let's go back to that and assume it's all true. But does some kind of PGA Tour live golf compromise the way the things are going? 
does that feel like it's inevitable, like it has to happen at some point? Because surely this open hostility can't continue you know, for the next two years, five years. Surely we're not still going to be fighting about this in 10 years. No, I don't think we will be because it's just getting started. It's off the ground. You know, next season's their first full season. And if they bring in sponsorship, the next year will be huge. And I'd, I'd, what's the point of fighting with each other? You know, live if, if they get off the ground next season and they get sponsors and they get world ranking points, they've won. Mm-hmm. So what's the fight about? I don't, I, I don't think it makes any sense for them to start shouting about the PGA Tour because they exist. Mm-hmm. They are playing for exorbitant amounts of money, playing less golf and getting to spend more time with their families. They've won. <laughs> and grow the game. And well, that's well, yeah. yeah. Look, if it does continue and this fight doesn't stop, there's only going to be one loser for me, and that's the PGA Tour, mm. quite honestly. So I think it is in their best interests. And I wonder, to segue neatly into the next point, if there may be an opportunity where the PGA Tour decides that it's not going to try and own the entire year and have events every, pretty much every week of the year, because I know this has been talked about. I know that's something that Rory and some of the guys want as well as a more defined off season. I have to be honest, I watched a little bit of the Worldwide Technology Championship at Mayakoba and I was bored. (laughs) Absolutely bored, senseless. It's the start of a new season, so of course it's going to need a bit of time to get momentum going. But you've just jumped into it straight off the back of the FedEx Cup playoffs, which like them or loathe them are exciting, which follow off the back of the majors. So yeah, there is a little bit of a lull. But why fill it? Why not just let there be a lull and make people miss the PGA Tour for a few months? Money. Because the money, when they were growing the game, that Tiger boom, it probably kicked in just about that time. That's when they realised they could start making more money. Tour players in Europe didn't play much golf after September and October. Yeah. Yeah, they maybe they maybe played the odd exhibition match in the states. They played exhibition golf, so they did have a kind of an off season in Europe and in the states, which lasted about three months. I think it's just the fact that they realised they could make money. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not always a good idea to just make money because look at it now, they're making money, but people are bored. The viewing figures suggest that in the states that the viewing figures are way down, big time. Yeah, you know, and but the problem is. The only time we talk about not liking an off-season is during the off-season, when it's there. When golf's at its peak and there's big exciting events and it's April, May, June, July and everyone's excited, we don't talk about the fact that we don't like the off-season. It's just always a... It's always of the moment. Mm-hmm. So it's they've got an opportunity to reshape and that's what the tour are doing right now with their prize funds, with the way they make up not necessarily the schedule, but the strategy of the tour. They're rethinking how they're doing that. It wouldn't surprise me in the next two, three years if they decided to maybe make December the time where the players can go and spend time with their families. <laughs> <laughs> it, it feels like... A, they used a, to play two weeks before Christmas. Yeah, yeah I know, I know. And I, it feels like you know a January to September schedule is probably enough. And mm-hmm. to be honest, you're right, that's what the majority of the best players stick to as far as the PGA Tour goes yes Morikawa played at the weekend yes Rory played CJ Cup but if you took those away from them are they going to be that disappointed no also it makes the other tours it makes the feeder 
tours and so on, and the players in the periphery. When you say g- feeder tours, you mean corn ferry and things oh, like right, that. All right, okay. Phew. Well, I wasn't suggesting that, Michael. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> we got to stay on track here. <laughs> what was I saying? You're it makes those, th- those p- yeah. players slightly on the periphery of a card, and it gives them something yep. to play for, and gives them value for their tour, and and so on and so forth. But it elevates other products. Yes, that's why they do it, you know. And I get it, but with the way th- with the way golf is going now, is it in their interest to have 10, 12 events when Santa is out with his sleigh, cutting about the sky, and they're playing? In front of no crowds, near a beach, somewhere tropical. Doesn't really mean anything. And no one's really watching it, and it's got a sponsor that you don't understand. Did you watch much of the Mayakoba Classic as it was? No. That's the thing. There's less interest in watching golf during this season, and the only time you do, used to watch it, Tiger would turn up. But maybe they could do a closed season, where it's PGA Tour and live, playing for some mental... Festive funds, I don't know. Festive fun. <laughs> Two hundred. PGA Tour Santa swing. Yeah, yeah, one million a shot. All that the Santa swing. <laughs> one million a go. I don't know. One million a hole or something. They could be doing crazy stuff, but like they used to. Used to, that's what you called it. The silly season when you had like the the shark shootout and the Franklin Templeton. Was that not what? Was. was that not the time of year when Ernie said you get the wheelbarrow? That's exactly right. I think it was. You had the it? Grand Slam of golf that. Only a handful of major winners, <laughs> the rubbish ones, showed up to, you know, this. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It just, it, it does just feel like there's never a break from the PGA Tour just now. So you kind of make your own, which is going to then make a problem for them, isn't it? If you just, if, if people start tuning out, then where's the value? Why, why bother? How long is the football season break? It's... But in Scotland, yeah, <laughs> depends what club you are. Because <laughs> you do start playing Euro- Europa League qualifiers, and you got into Total Cup. <laughs> Don't miss that. Yeah, so it's seven weeks about or something like that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which, if you think about it, is not a long time. But the thing is, when it starts back up, you're ready for it because you've missed it. Yeah, it's like Rory said not that long ago. He wants to miss golf for a little while. I'm kind yeah. of the same. Focus on other stuff. You know, NFL's on right now. I quite enjoy that. I know you're a huge fan of the Washington Commanders. I watched a bit of that last night. And? I didn't realise Jim Nance commentated on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, he knew what he was talking about. Jim Nance is utterly brilliant. Yeah, yeah, Tony Romo sitting alongside him, I could take or leave. Yeah, Jim Nance is sensational. You know what I like about American football is the spectacle of it. Yeah. It's great. The actual sport itself, the game, you're like, yeah. It's just, good. Like it's but kick- the theatre's unreal. Yeah, it kicked off, off last night and then there's some guy gets smacked into somebody else and then it stops for two minutes. And then there's straight away there's stats. Yeah. Stats. Like literally, the game is eight seconds in and we are looking at stats. Brilliant. American sport is mad. Colin Morikawa, I mentioned him earlier. This is quite interesting. I thought he started working with a putting coach for the first time. It came out over the weekend. Golf Week were reporting that Morikawa's working with a chap called Stephen Sweeney. I'll be honest, I've, I've never heard of Stephen Sweeney in my life, but I think it's not really so much who he's gone with, but the fact that he's going with someone. It's not been the year that I think many of us predicted for Colin Morikawa, has it? And he got quite testy when Trevor Immelman made some comments about the fast start that he made to his career and was that his ceiling? Wasn't best pleased, it feels like. <laughs> 2022 is going to be a year to forget for, for young Colin. It wasn't a great year, but to be fair, there's more than a few players that can say that 
However, Morikawa's been a huge success, has done things no other player has ever done. And he's done it being not necessarily a great putter. But his stats are poor. He's way outside the top 100 in strokes gained the last three years. At the moment, he's outside the top 200. On the PGA Tour, just to put that into context, when you're on the PGA Tour and your stats are something like 185 in strokes gained or worse, you're amongst the absolute worst on tour. Now, he's only played, I think, is it four events? It's like four counting events, Murakama, and he's outside the top 200, so very poor. However, he does have streaks. He does have times where he's really successful with a putter. When he won the Open, he didn't three-putt. Yeah, that's so true. Didn't yeah. three-putt. Yeah, well, and he said, I think he said that's the, either something like some of the best he's ever putted or one of the best putting weeks he's had. So when he's good, he's good. But he's clearly looked at some part of the game and said, I maybe should look into this and get some work done. But And I, I don't think it'll be too technical. But I'm always interested when players decide to look, look at one part of the game because ego's got to kick in. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes when you surrender your ego, it can be the best thing you ever do. Like, that's what Rory did this year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Rory surrendered his ego and just said, you know what, made a mistake with certain coaches. There's something I need to work on. He did it. And he's he's getting the benefit of that. And we'll all know whether he gets the real benefit of that next year. But Morikawa, he needs to improve his button. His, his stats suggest that. I think it's a smart move, isn't it? Because as you say, it's so easy to just carry on and, you know, I'll, I'll turn a corner. I'm really good. I've had success. I'll be fine. But for a young guy like that, still really, really early into his career, yeah, to acknowledge that there's a weakness and say, right, I need to get this fixed, I think is quite ballsy but also quite refreshing doesn't happen no. nearly often enough no how long do you think a fix like that could take because putting and for example what Rory was trying to fix very very different it, it, it really depends we don't know the ins and outs of what he's doing it, it could be sometimes these things are very much uh, all you need to do is stand a little bit closer to the ball Yeah, it can be that and it's just a case of repeat and rinse, repeat and rinse all the time on the practice putting green until until it's ingrained in you. That's what you do. Putting for me is a confidence thing. It doesn't always come down to technique. There is a technique that you need to get right with your putting, but it does come down to a repeatable stroke. And sometimes I think that's the catch-22. Sometimes the technique that you have will not allow you to have a repeatable mm-hmm. stroke. And there might be something that he's doing that's sticking him off in a dodgy line or or just doesn't give him the confidence but putting's the putting's fascinating I love reading about putting stats I love reading about how coaches teach putting if you've ever had a putting lesson have you ever had a putting lesson? Never It's one of the most uncomfortable things you can ever go through In what way? Because it just takes you out of your comfort zone completely and somebody tells you to do something that you don't like I don't mind doing that with like an iron or a driver like when you get a lesson you hit a Somebody tells you to do something, the chances are it will make you a better player when it's your long mm-hmm. game because they're a coach and you're not. And you can see and feel the difference with putting. You just still miss the hole. <laughs> you either hold the putt or you don't. That's very true. Whereas when you're on the driving range with a five iron and somebody says, I, I, one of the best lessons I've ever had in my life was with Andrew Jowett on a driving range. Andrew Jowett of Glen Eagles for yeah, wondering. I think it's at Infinitum, Infinitum in Spain, and we're on the range, and he's getting me to hit five irons and then getting me to hit three woods, and I could see my ball flight change, and I could see the way my ball was arriving at my penetration into the sky was just 
completely different than the way it used to be. Mm -hmm. That's an instant change that you can see and the ball's going further. Mm -hmm. And it, it feels different and it feels good. But when you're in a practice button green and you get a putting lesson and somebody tells you what to do, it doesn't, there isn't a marked difference in your ball flight. Yeah, that's true. I guess what you're saying is that the, there are lots of different ways to measure success with a swing change, but measuring success with a putting change comes down to holding it or not. Yes. That's why, to me, there's so many players on the tour that go from putter to putter to yeah. putter. Like, guys will take a putter out, putter in, putter out. You know, guys who work off a single putter and a single stroke and a single putting th theory will tend to be better. Mm -hmm. The best players in the world, the best putters in the world tend not to move about, tend not to switch because they have pure trust in what they're doing. Like, look at Woods. Played with the Scotty Cameron Newport 2 his entire career. All he does is get the, the face redone and he gets a new grip. Ben Crenshaw has got something like 12 versions of the same putter. That Wilson one, is it? Yeah. yeah. These guys just don't, they don't deviate because mm -hmm. they, they know what they know. So whatever more Cabell will be going through right now, I don't think it'll be big changes. It could be, but it, I do think it's fascinating the putting the whole world because it can actually make such a huge difference, but also it can really mess you up. Yeah. And if he gets it right, you know what I mean? If you look huge. at the rest of his stats and how well he performs across the other categories, if he can fix this and find consistency with the fix. Because I've, I've said this before, he is the best player in the world from tee to green. I, I still stand by it. If, if he could turn around his putting stats, he's extremely deadly because mm -hmm. he is an unbelievable talent. Mm -hmm. There's really nothing wrong in his game. And his putting is just, his putting's not that great. A lot of players have relatively bang average putting stats. That's the thing across the tour. You just get hot when you need to get hot. Mm -hmm. Given how good he is from the middle of the fairway as well, for the stats to be that yeah. poor, so. he outplayed he outplayed most players in the world for a good six months. Morikawa, mm -hmm. I mean, outrageous golf. So there's no way that's Evelman is totally wrong. There's no way that's a ceiling. Yeah, I think Trevor Immelman has tried to clarify those comments slightly tongue in cheek, maybe. I think he didn't articulate it the way that he maybe intended, so it sounded more harsh than it was. I think he was trying to make the point that he came out of the blocks so fast, achieved right. so much. You're like, is that the best you can play? When mm -hmm. you, I mean, two major wins and eight starts. There's an argument that is the best you can play. So I think his point was more, can he rediscover it as opposed to, well, that's him done now. Yeah. So we'll see. Anyway, a couple other quick points. Seamus Power, who sounds like an Irish superhero. I love that name. He's now into the world's top 30. He's quietly gone about his business one of the world's top 30 players and it feels like we don't really know a huge amount about him. It's a bit like the Gemma Driver question earlier, Bryce. Would you like Seamus Power oh, in the Ryder Cup team? Oh, Michael. When is the Ryder Cup? September. Let's worry about this in July. Okay, I'm pretending I'm Luke Donald. I'm pretending you're Luke Donald and I'm one of his vice captains. Yes. Eduardo Molinari. Yes. What do you like? I show him his power <laughs> in the Ryder Cup team. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's him off the pod. Let's hear your Luke impression then. <laughs> well, what about, <laughs> Luke Donald. Luke Donald impression? No, I don't have that. I don't. <laughs> yeah, he's quite calm. 
Yeah, I interviewed Luke Donald at Wentworth once and I thought he was going to fall asleep during the interview. I bored him that much. Well, you asked him, like, what's your favourite shade of pink and I know. stuff like yeah. that. Do you like shorts or trousers? Seamus in the Ryder Cup right now, yes or no? And then we can all move on. Most likely a yes, because I think they're going to need some Europeans that are doing rather well across the pond. Yes. So, and he could be one of them. Be a good foil for... Lowry as well, potentially. Straight away, I get the Irish link in there, fantastic. Well, they played well together in the, uh, the Olympics, which I know you obviously watched in, uh, was it 2016 in Rio? Oh, Anyhow, okay. Bernard Langer, here he is, he's still winning, he's won yet another PGA Tour Champions event, he's, you know, it feels like he's absolutely unstoppable, which he's is needing, incredible for a man. He's needing drug tested, <laughs> no joke, <laughs> it's outrageous. I mean, it's not fair. No, it's not. So he's now 123 years old and he's continuing <laughs> to win. What? I mean, drugs. <laughs> there is an obvious. Performance enhancing <laughs> drugs. It's an absolute outrage that he's not getting. T- Do you know why they don't test on the Champions Tour? Because there's no point. They're just old guys. What's the point of testing these guys? And Bernard has gone, you know what? I'm on it. <laughs> to be clear I'm juicing uh, to be clear Bryce's tongue is firmly firmly in his cheek just now can you state that for the record <laughs> as please? As, thank god he's not juicing thank god thank god he's not juicing the guy just hates to lose and he's just got a competitive bone in his body that you just, you just can't quite fathom I, I think a lot of the guys on Champions Tour just like to go out and drink wine at night and eat steaks And it was work for him and his what drinking, drinking wine, wine and <laughs> steak yeah, yeah, it was work for him it's just he is unbelievable. He looks fitter than the average man half his age. Was he 66? Yeah. He could outperform a 33-year-old in the gym easily. There's got to come a time where he just suddenly gets rubbish at golf. He's got to come a time. What if you gave him a different putter? Yeah, that um, I'm... Listen, I like Bernard Langer, but the... <laughs> there are pictures where it looks like he is anchoring. And this is the thing... No one really bothers that much when it's on the on the Champions Tour. But if he's doing that to win the Masters, that's a discussion. Now, he will argue that he's not actually touching his test, chest and that he's just pushing the arm into the shirt and it looks indented. However, when you anchor a putter, that's what it looks like. And when you open up the RNA's PDF that shows you what anchoring looks like, it looks like Bernard Langer. I'm not saying he's anchoring. But you're saying it looks like he is. It looks like he is. Yeah. Doesn't look good, and it just it actually, I don't think it's Bernard Langer's fault. I think it comes back to the people who made the rules. Yes. Didn't make a a more he's not doing any, rule. He's not doing anything different that he hasn't done for the last four hundred years. <laughs> Tom Morris complained about Langer's button. He's furious. <laughs> That's why he and Alan Robertson really fell out. <laughs> It was Langer that pushed what, what Tom Morris exactly. down the stairs. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, dearie, mate. Anyway. I said this the other night. It, it feels that the rate that he's going, that it'll be 2071 and Bernard Langer will be beating Sammy Spieth on his Champions Tour debut to win for the 400 odd time. He's, he is... The, the putting issue aside, he's an absolute... Genuine, he's a legitimate phenomenon, the way that he continues to win... Because there are guys on that tour 16 years younger than him. Yeah, that that's incredible. Have you ever seen a 66-year-old footballer? They don't look like Bernard Langer. How old is Ali, no, Ali McCoy? He's in his 60s, Jesus. Is he? No, no, he must be 50s, is he? 
66 year old. I mean, Sam Allardyce, basically, is what we're talking about. Yeah, he doesn't look like Bernard. Let's, let's just check that. Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce appointed Rangers manager. <laughs> Sam Allardyce is 68 years old. <laughs> Sam Allardyce. So he and Bernard look somewhat different. Anyway, that, that's a nice link into the football element of the show, which I did promise at the outset we weren't going to talk about, but that's because I don't want to talk about club football. Instead, let's talk about the World Cup, Bryce, because... That's international football. Yep. We don't want to <laughs> talk about that either. <laughs> well, our English listeners have got something to look forward to. As do our Guinean listeners. Ghana are in the World Cup. Yeah, there's four African teams in the World Cup. So, what, are we just going to pin our, you know... Are we going to get Guinean flags? Are we going to become Guinean fans for the duration? Because let's Absolutely. Face it, we don't have a Scottish team to support. So Ghana, we are Ghana, with you. that's our team. There are 32 teams playing in the World Cup, Bryce, which gets underway in Qatar within the next oh, is this a quiz? fortnight. Oh, I'm going to allow you I'm not good to, with geography. I'm going to allow you to bring up a list of all the teams playing in the World Cup. Right, okay, because you're going right. to need it for this. Right, okay, hold on. I'm going to give you the names of 10 golf courses each of which comes from a country that is in the World Cup finals in Qatar. And your job is to tell me that country. And they may or may not be in twice. <laughs> this is a disaster. <laughs> this so, has got Neil Poin written <laughs> all over it. It's got Neil Lennon written all over it. No, oh, come on! <laughs> so have you got your, your list of the 32 countries taking part? I've got it here. Okay, you all good? I'm all good. I'll start quite easy. Southern down. Oh, bollocks. Wales? Correct. Thanks. One out of one. That could be it. Himmerland? Denmark? Yes, correct. Thank you. We were number one in Denmark last week. God Morgan, Denmark. Were we? Yep, we were. Number three, two out of two, doing well. Kuyonga? Spell it. K-O-O-Y-O-N-G-A. South Korea? No. Box. You don't get two goals either. Australia? Oh. Big Ange is a member. Is he? No idea. <laughs> Asufid. That is Morocco. That is correct. Thank you. Kenemer. Spell it. K-E-N-N-E-M-E-R. Iran. What? No. Oh, no. The Netherlands. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry, Netherlands. <laughs> Next time we go to Iran, I'm getting shot. Glen Abbey. I know that name. Glen Abbey. You said you, you said you might put them in twice. Potentially. I'm going to be sneaky. I think that's Wales. Canada. Bollocks. Chapelco. Spell. C H A P E L C O. Chapelco. Argentina. Correct. Thank you. Wow. Royal Greens. Australia. No. <sighs> Saudi Arabia. Oh, I knew that. Price, 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 oh, price. I knew that. That's a bad one. I'm embarrassed. Koga. Spell. K-O-G-A. Ghana. <laughs> no. 
Japan. And last, but by no means least, Hacienda Panilla. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Hacienda Panilla. Costa Rica. Where did that come from? Because I knew you would try and screw me there because you thought I would go with Spain. So I knew Costa Rica. Exactly. I know you, McEwen. You're deviant. That is fair How many play. did I get? Five. Five out of ten? Yeah. That's actually quite good. Actually, given your geography and your, your knowledge of the planet, that's, that's not a bad return. I am My knowledge of the planet. <laughs> I'm absolutely stunned at Kenimer. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> no, it's uh, actually yeah. the Netherlands. So, Crazy. Uh, Iran looks lovely. I'll tell you what, you should have a look at the, what do you call it? Hacienda Panilla looks absolutely stunning. Right. I, I was doing this last night, obviously because I'm a total party animal and I create podcast content on Sunday nights. And honestly, it is it is absolutely beautiful. So, yes. Who's going to win the World Cup? I think it's going to be France. Yeah. England are okay. Germany are okay. There's no Italy, obviously. I wonder if Argentina okay. might spring a surprise. Well, it'll be the fairy tale ending for, uh, for Lino. Because he's never he? turned up at a World Cup, really, has he? Now's the time. Yeah. So, yeah, World Cup getting underway in a couple of weeks. I dare say this isn't the last time that we'll have some World Cup-related content on the podcast. No. But anyway, coming up after the break, COP27 is underway, Bryce, in... It's miles away. It's in Egypt. Correct. Sharm el Sheikh. And yes, we had it in Glasgow just on our doorstep this time a year ago. The annual climate summit, is it annual? Regular, anyway, climate summit where all the world leaders get together and talk about the environmental impacts of basically doing nothing. And come away with piss all. Exactly. And then get on a flight next year. But it does raise, again, the point of environmentalism and the need to be more sustainable. And that's why we're having a chat with the head of Geo Foundation for Sustainable Golf a little bit after the break. It's Listen, it's you're probably thinking sustainability, that's really boring. Trust me, it's not. This is a great chat and it is vitally important that people, whether you're a member of a golf club, you work at a golf club, or you've just got a passing interest in golf that you sit up and pay attention, this is actually one of the most important and I think one of the most interesting bits of content we've had on the pod to date. So, Stick with us, we'll be back right after this. To create an iron that performs like nothing else, you need to build it like no one else has. So we constructed the new Rogue ST irons with a high strength 450 AI face cup, doubled its tungsten weighting for optimal launch, and added even more urethane microspheres for exceptional feel and sound. Every aspect of Rogue ST has been precision tuned to create our longest iron ever. The new Rogue ST irons from Callaway, the kings of distance. Welcome back. Part two of this week's Bunker podcast in association with Callaway. Michael and Bryce here. And yes, we are here. You may have remembered, uh, those of you who listened to last week's episode, that there was some, <laughs> some uncertainty as to whether or not we would be allowed to continue to produce this podcast because we were summoned to DC Thompson headquarters in Dundee last week. It went fine. We're still here. We were, to be fair, we were invited. We were invited. Summoned. Summoned's probably the wrong word, but look, I'm a journalist. Clickbait in it, <laughs> but it, it went quite well actually. It was the first time visiting the the mothership, and Bryce, you were particularly interested in the archives, looking around all the old Beano stuff because you were once in the Beano. 
you were Plug from the bus. <laughs> <laughs> That's unfair. No, my nickname at uni was uh, Hen Brun. Because? I was really tall and skinny and I looked like Hen Brun. Right, okay. So, uh, yeah, a guy used to call me Andy. He used to call me Hen Brun all the time. There you go. But, but I, you, you were in the Bino Armos I think my name was title. in that Bino, yeah, our biggest selling magazine. <laughs> and I won a competition in the Bino when I, I think it was about nine and I came home from primary school and I went to the toilet. And when I was on the toilet, the doorbell rang and a guy came to give my mum something. And my mum sent him away. I came out of the toilet and I said, what was that? And she said, somebody saying something about a bike. We'd won a bike or something. I just sent him away. It was just nonsense. I said, I entered a Beano competition to win a bike. So they were like, wait a minute. So he tried to track this guy down, of course. But back then, there was no... They had to send a pigeon, you know, to go and find this guy. And uh, it was about four weeks later, they sent it back. And I was at one... Four a, weeks a, later? Yeah, geez. sent a bike. Now, think back then. So I'm talking like... <laughs> <laughs> this must have been like 1987, 88, something like that. How many kids entered a Beano competition? Thousands, presumably. I, I'm thinking it must be about anywhere between fifty to 100,000 kids would enter that. <sighs> Mental. Amount of copies they sold. And little old me won it. There you go. It's so great. what was the competition? It was a crossword, I think. I, incredibly, I got it right. <laughs> To be fair, I may have cheated. All right, okay. But yeah, I won a competition. What kind of bike? It's a small-sized, like, fancy kind of mountain bike. It was... I remember everyone kept on saying that it was very expensive mm. and it was very, very cool. Loved it. How many people can say they won a Beano competition? Well, probably quite a lot because it's been going for a while. But That's a very good point. Yeah. There's probably thousands. <laughs> <laughs> but we got to see in the archive room, you know, the very first Dennis the Menace yeah. comic and stuff. And What was interesting about Dennis the Menace for listeners who may not know this? He didn't have his famous red and black jersey in the first... Exactly. I think it was the first 11 episode. Uh, Comics or so on. And nay Doug, as we would say. Nay Nasher Doug. didn't appear for oh, years, actually, I think it was. And David Thompson, the director of DC Thompson, told us when we was addressing the room that the school next to the the head office at Meadowside was where the Bass Street kids was inspired. Brilliant, wasn't it? Yeah. Amazing. Brilliant. And when we say right next door, it is right, right next, next door. door. The yeah, next yeah, building yeah. is a school. Yeah. Amazing place. What I thought was really interesting was that there's a guy who still contributes cartoons for, it's either the Beano or the Dandy. He's like 89 years old and he still yeah. sends in a couple of months, which is unreal. That's incredible. Stunning place. The archives, my goodness, could have spent hours and hours in there, but really cool trip to the DC Thompson headquarters. And we we're, still exact. Em, we're still employed. <laughs> yes. Brilliant. So still have jobs. Have some of that. Anyway, yeah, as I mentioned before the break, we caught up with Jonathan Smith from the Geo Foundation for Sustainable Golf last week or rather I caught up with them I've been wanting to do this for a little while actually because I there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be triggered terribly by this but I genuinely quite passionately believe that we should be doing more to preserve the environment to do just the, like little marginal differences little marginal gains that we can all make just by being a little bit more responsible and what really pisses me off is when people look at golf and apply broad brush strokes and say well golf's terrible for the environment you're using up a lot of land and a lot of water and pesticides and actually no educate yourself so I thought 
what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring on someone who actually can educate people who can talk a little bit about the challenges the sport's facing caused by things like climate change and coastal erosion and so on, but who can also shoot down some of the myths surrounding golf and yeah. its place in the environmental awareness drive, for lack of a better expression. That man is Jonathan Smith. Here's our chat. Jonathan, welcome to the Bunkered Podcast. My goodness, you're going to get a grill in. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Yeah, thanks Thanks for inviting us on and uh, good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you here because as, as we talked about off air, you know, as I mentioned there, sustainability is a bit of a buzzword just now. It feels like people are using it more. You see it in conversations more, be it in newspapers or magazines, on websites, mm-hmm. on social media in particular, and now obviously in podcasts like this. As I say, everyone's familiar with the term, but what do we actually mean when we talk about sustainability, particularly as it relates to golf? So here's the elevator pitch. Go for it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Michael. I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, sustainability is everywhere. It's it's all around society uh, at the minute. And, and in fact, I mean, for a long time, it was sort of deemed to be a buzzword, maybe something that would come and go. But uh, I think it's going to be here for a long, long time. I mean, fundamentally, you know, as individuals, as sectors like golf, as businesses, as governments, you know, we've all got to um, address some of these big environmental uh, and sort of the, like the consequential social pressures that are created. So things like, you know, a change in climate where there are greater extremes, things like loss of biodiversity and ecosystems, uh, things like, you know, the way that we consume products and materials and then we've been pretty good at wasting them and throwing them away and, and causing pollution. Um, you know, the energy that we consume and the, the, the pollution and the results of that. So, you know, as as a global population, we've been living pretty unsustainably for the last 150 years. And I think we've all realised and we can all see that we need to do something about that. I mean, we live on one planet. We don't have other alternatives. So we've got to we've got to find ways uh, to live sustainably, sustainably on that one planet. And it, and it is affecting every part of the world you know businesses are really really buying into this they're changing the way that they produce their goods they're changing the way they market them they're changing the way that they deal with them at the end of life uh, governments are regulating governments are also incentivizing a lot uh, local communities are really getting involved so you know if you look around you um, wherever you live there will be schools that are active colleges community groups ngos you know who are all expressing this care for the environment because really we're realising that, you know, the quality of the environment is fundamental to our quality of life going forward. So, yeah, it's 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 a big issue and there are reasons why it's a big issue. And, and you know, the big thing now actually for all of us is how quickly can we sort of, you know, live, work and play more sustainably. Well, that's exactly it, isn't it? Because time is of the essence, you know, the, the planets, not, <laughs> the, the, the climate issues that we face, for example, they're not fixing themselves we are actually going to have to take action to do it but i feel like uh, a lot of people and certainly anecdotally people that i know and speak to they feel a bit overwhelmed when it comes to it because they've been asked they feel like they're being asked to do so much recycle this and use less of that and get an electric car and there's an awful lot bundled into this how do you simplify the message to make people feel that they can as an individual make real tangible, meaningful changes and differences. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is, you know, it, it's it, it's a great word in a way, sustainability, but but it's also its own worst enemy. It's, it can be quite <laughs> complex. And unfortunately, the issues are 
quite complex. So the, so the job of organisations like ours and others that are working in the space is to make it is to make sure the complexity and the substance is in there, but to also offer very very easy steps and pathways to people in different in different walks of life. So within golf, some of the things that we see golf associations doing are stepping forward in sustainability with new strategies and new policies. Uh, and new practices. So this is like national golf associations, including likes of Scottish golf, it's international associations like the RNA and others, uh, the DP World Tour, um, lots of different sort of, you know, organisations within golf saying we want to make this part of uh, the future of golf. It's vital to the future of golf. And we are going to sort of lead off and we're going to lead by example and, and try and have the influence that we that we can have. And that and corporate it, buy-in is so important, isn't it? Because if people see big companies getting involved, then they might take it a bit more seriously. I think that's right. I think that's right. The advocacy and the leadership that those, you know, sort of big associations in golf can can present is really, really important. Um, because if, if they're not seen to care, then why should the individual golfer care mm-hmm. or why should the golf club care? So that leadership is really happening and that that's that's great to see. That's important. So that's kind of almost top down in a way, but then it's also about what can happen from the bottom up. So, you know, what can individual golfers do? And there are, you know, there are sort of do one thing type activities that they can do. Look at, you know, the apparel they wear, the golf shoes that they wear, ask questions, nice questions about the course they're playing and how much nature's on there or, you know, why the turf is the way it is or how much water do we use and things like that. And and what are we doing about plastics? So there are, for grassroots golfers and for clubs, there are some very, very practical steps and there's some good guidance, very, very accessible out into the industry to help golfers and to help uh, clubs get on that pathway and get on that journey. And, and, and I think we're seeing a lot of that in golf as well. Uh, we're seeing a lot of golf clubs at the minute saying, yeah, we want to be more sustainable. We want to be more popular. We want to be more efficient. We want to be recognised and supported in our local community. We want to be invested in by companies and you know maybe government funds and so on. So they're doing that, and then they're embarking on really quite quite sort of practical steps to make that happen. Uh, they're naturalising their courses, trying to find a bit more space for nature. They're re- drilling down really really hard on how they're presenting great turf for as much of the year as possible. Uh, they're overcoming some challenges like more rainfall and more drought. Uh, they're trying to engage in the community and be socially responsible and socially valuable. They're cutting out single-use plastics and all sorts of things. So, you know, it's a big word, but there's a lot of simple steps that different parts of golf can take. And and actually, you know, the good news is that, that, that more and more parts of golf are taking those steps. I guess the big question for golf is, can we make, like all parts of society, all sorts of sectors and businesses, are we moving quickly enough to overcome the challenges because they're moving quickly? Yeah, exactly. I want to pick up on one of the things you just said there that let's let's drill into a sort of specific example of trying to educate golfers to to think and consider about the whether it be the, the apparel they wear or the shoes they wear. There'll be people listening to this thinking, how how does my polo shirt impact the environment, for example? What do you what do you mean specifically about that? What can people learn from that? Yeah, so apparel is a big one, you know, and uh, sort of shoes, clothing. You know, there, there are a lot of environmental impacts sort of embedded within the, the fashion industry and within the, within the apparel and equipment sectors. So, you know, we are seeing companies, you know, looking at where the raw materials are coming from. So what's the environmental impact of the cotton or the polyesters or other things? We're seeing companies now making clothing out of recycled ocean plastic. So, th- so the source of that product is different. We're seeing golf shoes made out of, you know, 80, 90, even higher percentages of recycled plastic 
themselves and recycled materials. So instead of having products um, that we're consuming that were kind of virgin materials that were extracted and transported long distances, we're seeing more and more companies using recycled materials and and often kind of you know more local uh, and less impactful materials. So you know if a golfer can start to look at you know their tees, their golf bag, their clothing, their shoes, you know that starts to make a difference. Particularly when you're talking about you know tens if not hundreds of millions of golfers around the world yeah it's the sum of all those small parts that's going to make one big difference i guess isn't it and you know i know that you guys recently staged sustainable golf week which we'll get into in a, a bit more detail shortly but to give people a sense of just how serious this issue is being taken tell me about your team the size of it how long you've been going what what does the, the geo foundation look like yeah so the foundation we're, we're quite a, a niche organization in a way there's not many organizations like ours in the world of sport where you know we've established a non-profit that is entirely dedicated to helping that sport with with sustainability and you know we're a group of people that uh, love golf and care about golf and want to see golf succeed in the future but are also very passionate about the environment and about things like social responsibility uh, as well so our kind of mission is to work you know with and for golf like a caddy that's the sort of analogy that we use as an organization so the you know the different parts of golf that are on the tee and playing and you know how can we be there to know the landscape help sort of build a decent bag of tools and try and help golf score and succeed as 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 well as possible in this space that's the that's the sort of culture and ethos of the organization and really what we want to do is primarily help golf improve its social environmental performance so to be as really as much of a contributor as the sport can be which it already is but what more can the game do uh, secondly, to use that movement to change golf's image and reputation because the sport, unfortunately, has had a negative image and we see that playing out in the media and in different places. So change that help enhance and improve the image and reputation and help golf to be seen as, you know, as you said, part of the solution, not part of the problem. And then golf, because of its reach and influence, one of the things that we hear from environmentalists actually is, you know, what they're fascinated about sport and sports like golf doing is if golf is walking the walk and it starts to talk the talk then think of all the people and other businesses and communities that it can positively influence and get involved in sustainability so that's kind of what we're about is you know golf's performance its profile and its wider sort of reach and influence um and we're, and we're really excited about that because that can transform the sport from something that might be seen to not really care or to be a little bit behind the times on this topic to actually putting the sport as at the forefront and and a really really good contributor to some of these environmental and social issues that we all face and we all want to overcome so important because i can't tell you how often i get frustrated when i see uh, for example a tweet recently by chris packham who i used to i still do like him but i used to love watching chris packham stuff jonathan i, I remember the, the really wild show with michaela strachan back in the day so i do have a soft spot then i see him retweeting something that greenpeace has put out the it's i think the messaging was right it was just articulated very clumsily and dare i say it a little bit lazily where greenpeace is pointing out the lack of solar farms in the UK and using the amount of golf courses or land devoted to golf courses in the UK to, to kind of draw stark parallels and the message was almost a case of you know could these golf courses be better used for the environment and I really get frustrated when I see that because I know 
working in the industry, how much is done by the sport to be environmentally aware and to Mm -hmm. protect biodiversity. It's just sometimes making that message punch through is really hard. Now, it's hard enough for me as a journalist, but frankly, it's your job, Jonathan. It must must be (laughs) such a challenge at times to to present golf as rather rather than being a destroyer of the environment, as a protector of the environment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, we saw that. And I think, I mean, you know, Greenpeace is an organisation that, you know, and to a lot of their, their their credit and their merit, look for ways to publicise issues or to draw public attention to, to important issues. And I think there is an important issue lying behind what Greenpeace were pointing at. And I think what Chris Packham was also commenting on, which was about land use in general and and. Uh, some of the the challenges we have with a finite amount of land and increasingly that land is having to work really hard on a whole range of different fronts. I mean, we need it from urbanisation and housing to food production to forestry and rewilding and just pure nature to uh, energy, which is not just solar, but it's also like biofuel crops and things like that. And then we've got that, you know, need for recreation and, and which we should all have access to. Absolutely. Um, I thought, it, I thought it was a bit unfair to pick golf out, to be honest, because golf's a, actually a really great example of nature and recreation and a bit of rewilding and health and well-being for communities and jobs. I mean, golf is a sort of microcosm of lots of different things, and a golf course can provide so many environment and often does already, provide so many environmental services and combines that with putting people in nature and all the social benefits that that it delivers. And I think on the environmental front, just just to drill down on it, because it's worth saying, you know, if you look at the land that golf protects from other development, if you look at the rare species that we find on golf courses, if we look at golf courses and the way that they can be biodiversity hotspots, particularly in intensively farmed areas, there's triple SIs, there's sites of special scientific interest, there's local nature reserves on golf courses. And one of, part of the reason they're local nature reserves is because golf has made them that way. There's habitat patches, there's corridors, there's habitat edges, there's some unique things that golf brings to ecology, like um, in terms of species diversity, which you don't find on other pieces of land. There's ecosystem services, there's carbon sequestration, there's um, air quality, there's noise abatement, there's pollination. You can rattle off all the sort of (laughs) kind of nature-based and environmental terms and you can apply them to golf and you can actually apply them quite meaningfully. It doesn't mean to say that golf is perfect in that front and there's not more that golf can do to naturalise and to contribute to nature, but there's a lot already there. So I think it was unfair to sort of maybe single golf out as somehow an example of unproductive land where, you know, using it for solar and energy would somehow be more productive. That's, it's not, not, not a, a great comparison and not really a very fair one when you start to understand and look at, you know, what golf delivers. But I do think they were probably making a, a fair wider point about just these competing pressures for land as a whole. And to, to be honest, I mean, the, the onus there really does lie on the golf industry to get out there and to tell the public and to tell the media and to tell environmental NGOs how productive the sport is. It's more productive than people think, but golf hasn't really been great at getting that message out there or telling that story proactively. Is there a a stigma, do you think, about environmentalism or sustainability? You know, I I can't help but feel that some people have have a view of it and perhaps it's linked to some of the individuals that have 
been the most proactive or certainly the most visible, if you like. You think back 20 years ago to the likes of Swampy in the UK, and now you've obviously got <laughs> Greta Thunberg. For some reason, these individuals are exceptionally triggering to a certain demographic. And in a lot of cases, that then means that the very worthy message that they present is lost. I can't help but feel that there is a certain stigma attached to being seen to be environmentally conscious. I think I think the conversation and the movement of sustainability has required lots of different voices. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's requ- it's required activist voices uh, for sure, and th- and that's that's important part of like creating change is that people see things maybe objectively or in a different way or you know more urgently and and you know are, are able to say that i think one of the voices one of the one of the personalities of sustainability that isn't maybe coming out as strongly but it is there is that sustainability is also trendy yeah yes and so it's true. quite so so it's not it's not just kind of you know the, the stereotypical view from 15 years ago of ecologists and environmentalists kind of somehow wanting to shut the world down and whatever it might might be i think now we're into into a world of sustainability and you can see this in businesses and companies and the way that they market and sell sustainability that it can be cool that it can be very modern and contemporary that it can speak to generation zers and future generation alphas you know, like young people and families. And actually, there's a big movement now in consumers um, who look for what's called lifestyles. I know this is a bit cheesy, but lifestyles of health and sustainability. Mm-hmm. So they want to live lives outdoors, in nature. Uh, they know it's good for their physical health. They know it's good for their mental health. And they want sustainability to be part of that. They want to know that it's cleaner, that it's not wasteful. Do you know what I mean? Like they're not, they're not part of the problem themselves. Golf can play into that space hugely. We actually see quite a lot of parts of golf seeing sustainability as a really good way of helping modernise the sport and putting a modern image on the sport because it's so contemporary. And that's quite a different view of sustainability from the sort of activist view. Uh, and I think it's something that golf can tap into. As long as it's not greenwashy, um, I think that that's important. But why wouldn't it feel good to be part of a golf club that is delivering a lot of social and environmental benefits? Look, obviously, there will be people again listening to this, though, who will feel that there is an element of scaremongering around some of the messaging and around some of the the, the worst case scenarios, if you like, that, that do get presented as, a, as an example of if we don't do X, Y and Z is inevitably going to happen at some point. Our colleagues at The Courier newspaper, a local newspaper in Dundee, owned by the same company, they did a really interesting, insightful piece into coastal erosion and the impact of that on golf courses, which in a lot of cases, particularly in the UK and Ireland, a fair proportion of them are located right up against the sea. And they used the example of the old course in St Andrews, saying that if the current trends continue and without interventory action, then by the year 2100, large elements of that golf course will be underwater because of the the, the creep of the sea, if you like. Obviously, that triggered a lot of people, Jonathan, and you can see it on our our Facebook page or on social media, people saying this is just complete nonsense, that would never happen. Are they right or are they wrong? So the the science is quite clear in terms of the overall trends and the sort of macro trends in climate change and some of the impacts that will have on coastal regions, whether it's, you know, what might be seen as relatively small increases in sea level rise, 
but it's exacerbated with increasing storm occurrences, with sea stir- sur- uh, storm surges, uh, with wind and, and, and other forms of uh, coastal erosion and sort of, you know, um, inundation. So uh, groundwater rises in groundwater, increased flooding. That can be part of, you know, what causes coastal inundation and flooding uh, in in low-lying coastal zones. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, very credible sort of studies into how that's playing out at a macro level. I mean, we, we're seeing golf courses and hearing from golf architects that courses in Florida are being inundated increasingly from sort of over-the-top kind of flooding, so like storm surges and uh, sea water flooding, but also uh, groundwater changes and sort of inundation, so the you know the water table's changing. And that is posing some massive challenges for some very, very well-known golf courses. On the Lynx side, you know, in sort of, which are predominantly in kind of northwestern Europe and obviously, you know, hallowed and um, our oldest and most historical courses, um, you know, a lot of it then plays out sort of locally. Um, I think that so the macro trend is that this is a real challenge for Lynx courses. Locally, it's very difficult to say exactly how it's going to play out at any given point or time or how quickly that erosion is going to happen. But I think we probably could make the generalisation that there's increasing amounts of erosion along historic uh, Lynx courses. And it's a bit of a two-sided coin because... Whilst that erosion, that coastal change is happening more severely, what's also been happening is that government policies have been changing. So uh, it's not really feasible, it's not really permitted now to input the kind of hard defences along golf course coastlines that it would have been 20 years ago. So this, you know, there's, it's a bit of a sort of two-pronged attack and it's a bit of a pinch point for those courses that um, the erosion is happening, but the solutions aren't the same and maybe aren't as immediate as were accessible 20 years ago, like, you know, the, the, the gabions and the rock armour and the, mm-hmm. um, the sort of seawalls and things like that. So it's, it's, it's a very, very difficult space and it's very difficult to find solutions for it. And I think we need to avoid scaremongering, absolutely, but it would be dreadful not to pay attention to that and not to try and find solutions to, you know, save the most historic courses. Mm-hmm. I think it's very important to point out that in the case of St Andrew's Lynx, there has been a pivot, and you're quite right. There's there's no real seawalls there, but what they are doing is making significant changes to the dune structure, for example, along the West Sands, that is having a real meaningful, tangible impact. It's not as visual as, say, a seawall, but it is there, so precautions are being taken. So whilst we do talk about flooding and the risk of losing you know, a part of the, the second hole, 17th fairway, and so on, that is absolutely the worst-case scenario but a scenario nonetheless if no action is taken. Yeah, there is, I should just say, and and this is without sort of preempting anything, the, so the RNA have commissioned a study over the last uh, couple of years, which I think will be coming to fruition and producing case studies and guidance on coastal erosion and some of the tools that are available to clubs and local authorities to address that. So let's talk about the C words then, if you like. Uh, <laughs> Climate change, that that hot, quite literally hot potato. There is, again, a lot of opinion-splitting rhetoric around about climate change and even the terminology of global warming and so on. Does it exist? Does it not? Is it tangible? Is it not? Give me a, a better understanding of what the implications are on, uh, on the changing climate, particularly as it relates to golf courses. Because I know, again, it's Sustainable Golf Week. In advance of that, you made some 
quite eye-opening observations about the impact, perhaps on even on tea times in hotter parts of the world. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, what we're seeing. I mean, again, keeping the conversation sort of practical rather than political. I mean, and we're seeing this from greenkeepers. Uh, across Europe and different parts of Australia, different parts of the world, USA. So there are some changes in climate. There are trends happening. And uh, some of the things that we've looked at in terms of researching this were, were quite interesting. So I think you know during Sustainable Golf Week, we talked a little bit about the extreme heat days that are happening in different parts of the world, whether it's Central Europe or Southern Europe or across the USA. And that is a very tangible, you know, um, relevant thing in terms of, you know, when temperatures get over a certain level, when humidity gets over a certain level, then how much time should should we be outdoors? Are we meant to be outdoors? And how long is it safe to be outdoors in those sorts of conditions? And it certainly is increasing when you look at maps of the USA and you look at maps of Central and Southern Europe, we are seeing extreme heat being a factor in outdoor sports. And even to the tournament level, like amateur events, kids' events, it's having a knock-on effect on on the, on the playing of outdoor sports, including golf, which, you know, you're outdoor for, for quite a few hours. So extreme heat is one thing. But then, you know, we've also got these extremes of flooding and more rainfall and more ground saturation. We're seeing that across uh, golf courses in countries like Scotland. Uh, so And that has a direct impact on, you know, um, the condition of the golf course and how muddy it is underfoot and what diseases might be sprouting up to damage the greens. So so that rainfall patterns, the flooding and then the, the, the sort of wet and the dry is definitely becoming more pronounced, more extreme and happening at different times of the year. And it's having a knock on effect on course conditions and pressures on greenkeepers and pests and diseases uh, on, on golf courses. So there there are you know, very, very real things happening, more more frequent and uh, severe storms, and they all affect golf because it's an outdoor sport. You know, the, the knock-on effect for the golfer and for the club is, do we need to uh, start to change our drainage? Do we need to invest? And that can be quite a big investment. Should we ch- change our drainage? Should we store more water uh, in the winter when it's flooding the golf course and wetting the fairways? Should we try and drain that into some areas that we can store that water and then use it in the summer as irrigation water. Because again, you know, governments are looking at looking at this and, you know, costs of water are increasing, restrictions on water are increasing uh, more frequently. So it's a climate issue, but it, it's also an issue that really affects some of the things that we need in order to play golf successfully and happily. Just so I'm clear then, when, when you're talking about, you know, hotter days and those sort of freak phenomena, if you like, does that mean that it stands to reason then that there's going to be, for example, afternoon tea times might not be available in those hotter parts of the world simply because of the the risk of exposure to those elements? Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, you know, looking at looking at the the conditions that people should be outdoors and whether they should be walking around a course or whether they need buggies, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, health um, from a sort of like a junior golfer point of view, you know, the uh, the education services are quite clear in many parts of the world where um, actually the conditions, you know, children, young people shouldn't shouldn't be out uh, for that length of time in those types of conditions. Uh, and we are seeing some disruption in, in the Mediterranean to, to golf, to sort of junior golf events and the timing that they're played and the days that they're played. I think that's relatively rare across, you know, globally, taking a sort of global picture and also looking at the number of days that golf's played. But it's something to 
these are sort of indicators of something that is happening that, you know, we probably shouldn't just sort of discard, but we should pay a bit of attention to. I mean, the big picture is that climate change and a changing climate is definitely having different impacts on golf. And they're, they're generally more on the negative side than the positive side. And so the other question there is, which is a, a moral one and a practical one, what can golf do to reduce its climate impacts? And that's where things like, you know, looking at ways to reduce our carbon footprint. We all we all need to do that to reduce our emissions and to try and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. And I know that, you know, the, there will be people that will not necessarily want to focus on that or maybe disagree with some of the, 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 the big consensus that there is in the, in the science. And actually, to be honest, we tried not to get too hung up on the, the, the climate side because, you know, the way to reduce emissions is to be efficient with resources that saves you money. It's to try not consuming waste materials that are either wasting you money or causing another environmental problem like pollution, which nobody wants. I mean, you don't want to go down to your beach and walk on plastic. We don't want, uh, by 2050, the weight of fish in the ocean to be outdone by the weight of plastic in the ocean. So forget the carbon and the climate story around that. That's all wrapped up in it. But what we don't want is no biodiversity in our landscapes. We don't want to be dependent on water and energy that costs a fortune and drives up our green fees. And we don't want to be responsible for for damaging the environment and being wasteful if we don't need to be. If there are people listening to this, be they golf club members, be they nomadic golfers, be they people on committees or general managers, and they want to find out more about what action they can take, how do they tap into your resources, Jonathan? Well, we've got uh, the website is sustainable.golf and uh, you can find out more about who we are and the programmes and also our partners and supporters work very collaboratively with golf bodies uh, in different parts of the world. So uh, you can find out all of that at sustainable.golf. And then, I mean, I think my message would be, you know, if, if, you're, a, if you're involved in decision-making in a golf club and you're not really, you know, if you feel that you're not doing this consciously, just make a start. There's an on-course program. It's called On Course. It's online. It's free to any club. It's full of hints and tips and guidance, and it will get you started. If you are a club that feels that you're already doing a lot, start to talk about it. We have a tool called Sustainable Golf Highlights. It's like a Pinterest for sustainable golf. You can go on there, create a story, start to share it in your own social media. It goes into a, a directory that is shared with other clubs so they can learn from your club, like a knowledge sharing thing. So, yeah, start, do a quick self-assessment, make a simple plan, start to talk a little bit amongst your members and in the community and, and share some of your stories. There's nothing to lose in sustainable golf. There really isn't any major challenges for golf if golf's active in this space. The challenges are going to come if you're not active and you're not looking at this, you know, some of these issues. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more. Well, Luke, keep up the great work. It is a, a very, very important drum that you are banging. I know that some people might be listening to this and thinking, Michael, what are you talking about? They may maybe disagree. <laughs> they, they may be climate change deniers. I don't know. And frankly, I don't care because, you know, it's clear. The science is clear. The numbers are clear. So inaction is simply not, uh, it's not a solution. So as I say, keep up the great work to you and your team, Jonathan, and thank you very much for coming on the Bunker podcast. Hopefully you'll come back again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Michael. It wasn't nearly as, uh, uh, as, as grilling as I thought it might have been. <laughs> That's uh, second very time <laughs> um, but, but also thanks for getting the message out. It's really important that the golf media kind of helps 
talk about this. So thank you. Yeah. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time. Big thanks to Jonathan for his time. I don't know about you, Bryce, I found that a really fascinating chat. I think he's a really interesting guy. I think the work that he and his frankly quite small team are doing is right on. It's exactly what we need. We need a group like that that's going to, I was going to say push the agenda, that sounds bad, but who are going to fly the flag for golf and sustainability because we all need to be more sustainable, don't we? Absolutely, we need to do something. Some of what he was saying was quite worrying. Tea times in quite, California, yeah, for example. To be quite honest, that's a bit scary. But we do know it's, it, you know, people say it's scaremongering and so on. It's not, it's a real thing. Look what's happened on the east coast of Scotland mm-hmm. in the last few years. Montrose, yeah. for example, losing some of their yeah. holes even This is climate change. This is not scaremongering, it's real. So we need to we need to get into it more. But I was in, um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this last week, on the pod with um, Don Pedro, where I played Victoria course, but you can yeah. tell that course looks different. The way they've done their greens, um, there's less water in the course, and they've put out a video in the last week or so talking about their sustainable efforts and what they're doing and how they're recycling water and using different materials and so on. So everyone is having to have a conversation about it, but really we need to start seeing action. But the problem is a lot of clubs will not be able to afford to do this. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know that Dundonald Lynx has always championed that cause down in the Ayrshire Coast. They've really been at the forefront of this for for a long time. They've won awards and so on. They do an unbelievable job when it comes to sustainability. But not every course in Scotland can afford to be like that. Mm-hmm. But I think the more the more courses learn about how they maybe can cut some corners to try and be a bit more sustainable than we'll all be better off. Absolutely agree. I think, you know, as I said to Jonathan, there is that stigma just now around being seen to be green. You know, it, it does upset some people, the idea that, oh, why would you do that? That's just silly. Actually, no, it's it's kind of important. Okay, Podder of Merit. Last week, I drew level. We're at eight all going into the Worldwide Technology Championship at Mayakoba. And so I fortunately got the honour. I'm starting to realise honour is quite an important thing in the Potter of Merit. So Bryce, come to who you picked in a second. I went for Victor Hovland. I was predicting three in a row for him after his back-to-back wins, 20 and 21. Bryce, you went for Tony Fino. You said you had a feeling about him that this is going to be a big year for him potentially. It was his first time playing the event, but you know you didn't think that really mattered too much. Tony missed the cut. Whereas uh, Vic Hov finished in a tie for 10th point for me, which Whatever. makes it Bryce 8, Michael 9. Ooh. Now remember, you can still win this week. Of course I can. We're going to the Ned Bank Golf Challenge, the penultimate event on the DP World Tour this year. 8-9. So all I need is a win this week, a point this week, and that will do it for me. Bryce, if your player that you choose wins, there you go. Two points and you will win. If you just win the point, it's nine all. And that, it's it's almost like Dustin Johnson versus Cam Smith in the final of the, the Live Team Championship. It would have that kind of that kind of drama to it. Would it? Don't know. So, <laughs> Ned Bank Golf Challenge. What do you know about Ned Bank, seeing as your Mr. Sponsor? That is, that's a new one to me. I mean, I think the clue's in the name. Yeah, the um, the hangabout street corners with their 
shouting abusive <laughs> people. Uh, Bryce yeah. playing there on the term Ned. Ned, yes. yes. I have no idea what they do. This probably involves financial something. Yeah, you're right. It's, well, bank, personal banking services for better money choices, they say. In what country do they really exist in? That would be the Republic of South Africa. I don't pop into my local Ned Bank and so No, <laughs> <laughs> no, they they are a South African bank. Good luck to them. Look, a decent decent field. Tommy Fleetwood's there. Ryan Fox is obviously needing a, a big finish to overhaul Rory at the top of the race to the buy rankings. Bunkered cover star Adrian Moronk is there. Jordan Smith, fresh off his win in the Portugal Masters, is there. Rasmus Hoygaard. Robert McIntyre, Ewan Ferguson. It's actually quite hard. It's very hard. Someone. It's very hard. I'm thinking of going out on a limb and just... Okay, well, I, I I, hate I hate to be boring and predictable, but I just want the point. I know you're going to pick Ryan Fox. I'm going to pick Ryan Fox, yeah. You tosser. <laughs> Over to you, Bryce. Who is the man to pip Ryan Fox this week and to keep you in the game? I like Hoygaard. I also like Bob. I like Ewan Ferguson. I also like Tommy Fleetwood. <laughs> I actually like Jordan Smith as well. If you look down the list at the invites as well, you've got well, four South Africans there. Interestingly, Brandon Grace. Mm-hmm. Lives Brandon Grace is pegging it up this week. You've also got Ryder Cup captain Luke Donald. You've got Christine Bezadenote, Richard Sterney and JC Ritchie completing the invites. Who are you going with? Hoygaard, I'm going to stick with him. Rasmus? Rasmus. Rasmus Hoygaard. Well, our huge following in Denmark will be absolutely delighted absolutely. by that choice. So, Rasmus Hoygaard versus Ryan Fox. Do you remember when the Red Bank, was it not at one point the richest yes, one event? Yes, mil- it's not one million pounds or something like that. That's pocket change now. I think so, yeah. 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 It was a huge event back then. I think it still is, but not quite the same. So, I can win it this week. Very exciting. So can I. Yes. Also very exciting. Yes, so we'll see where we are this time next week. We need to, we, there will be some podder of merit refinements over the close season. And I think we should bring in forfeits to make it just a little bit. We, it's missing jeopardy at the moment. It's a bit like live, there's no cut. You know, there's there's no consequence for not winning a point. It's so, fine as long as I can stay fully clothed. And God, I want you to stay fully clothed. <laughs> Nudity is not going to be part of it. I can assure you. So if you've got suggestions, let's throw it out to the, the listeners. If you've got suggestions on what forfeits could be, get in touch. DM us. Honesty box to finish up. Bryce, this question came to me over the weekend when somebody shared a picture of a frankly ridiculous looking golf course in Iceland. When I say ridiculous, I mean ridiculously good. What is That's the famous one. I can't remember what it's called. Luff, Luff, no, 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 no. That's, that that's Norway. No, it's not. Lofoten links is Norway. Of course it is. I know it's Norway. You said it was Iceland. See, I'm doing a wee double one. <sighs> yes. Right. Dublin down good. there. Dublin down there. We're starting to see now how you only managed to get five right <laughs> in the World Cup quiz. But, yeah, it, it was this picture that was shared of a, a golf course in Iceland. If you jump onto my Twitter account, you'll see it there. It was shared on November the 4th. It is absolutely beautiful looking. I can't for the life of me remember the name, but do go and check it out. Stunning. Iceland's not the most obvious place for a, a golf holiday, though, is it? You wouldn't think, yeah, off to Iceland for a couple of days. You'd go off to Iceland for some frozen food, really, would be the, the thing. Yeah, I want to go to Iceland, though. I think it would be pretty cool. Glaciers and fjords and yeah, so Yeah, yeah. I flew into Reykjavik on the way to Orlando once, and it looked Baltic. In fairness, I was flying in January. 
Yeah, no, it'd be freezing. It was I think just it'd be quite a cool place to go. Food's meant to be amazing. Yeah. So that they also thinking. they also eat some seriously weird stuff. Yes. Like weird, weird food. Eel and herring and yeah, reindeer that. and elk and reindeer. <laughs> reindeer. <laughs> they eat everything. Absolutely I know they everything. do. I know. They do like rotting fish and things like <laughs> this. howling. So that got me thinking, where is the strangest place you've ever played golf? We're both relatively well-travelled men. Yeah, and I know, and I have to say, I'm really boring. I don't think I've played anywhere remotely odd, but that might change next year. Oh, do tell. Might be going on holiday to Swaziland next year. Uh-huh, now, carry on. Google that, because I think I could go and see our relatively massive fan base in Ghana. I don't know where it is in Ghana, though. You're familiar with the continent of Africa and how big it is. Yeah, yeah, I do know it's quite big. I just don't know. I don't think it is next door to Swaziland. So whilst you check that out, golf courses in Swaziland, for example, Eswatini is the number one ranked course there. That's TPC Eswatini yeah. to you. you got Ubombo Country Club, Royal Swazi Spa. <laughs> Part of me thinks that's made up. Yeah, to be and honest, Swaziland's miles away from... Uh, that's a disaster. It's miles away from uh, from Ghana. Enkonyeni Lodge and Golf Estate. So yeah, there are there are places in Swaziland you could play. Why why would you be going to Swaziland? Wife's family. Wife's got family in Swazi. All right. Okay. So uh, yeah, we could go there, and there are golf courses, and they're meant to be really good. You'll need to take the clubs because I'm not sure clubs to hire or ship sticks. Yeah, no, I do, I do have the fear of flying from Edinburgh to Dubai, Dubai to Joburg, and turning up with my clubs. That gives mm. me the fear. That could be the most interesting place I've played golf in Swaziland. But really... Currently it's what? Dom Pedro? Scottsdale. <laughs> you have played Scottsdale, yeah. TPC Scottsdale. That's, but I don't think that's obscure, you know. I had a bit of the same problem. I'm thinking, hmm. One place that came to mind was Delaware. Because, well... Delaware. Always Wayne's World references. You've played in Delaware? Yeah. I played that golf course that hosted a PGA Tour event that, not that long ago. Wilmington. Who's the who's the crazy US politician, the female, gun-toting... Marjorie female? Taylor Greene? No, recent uh, glasses. Sarah Palin? Sarah Palin. Alaska. She, no, she, she lives in her hometown. I played golf in her hometown. I think she lives in Alaska. I don't think... Right. I'll find it. Anyway, I played in Delaware. That's kind of obscure because I think people forget Delaware is even a place. But then I didn't play in this place but I did visit it and I got a full tour of it and I went round in a buggy and that's Elo Surf Golf Course Latus Rock oh, yeah, yeah, designed yeah. by the aforementioned Bernard Langer yeah, back yeah. in 1822 yeah he designed it in 1830s <laughs> I think yeah. that's in Mauritius which is a pretty obscure place to get to in the first place I went there on my honeymoon in 2011 and it's the golf course is accessible only by boat because mm -hmm. it exists in its, its own little island it's amazing it's stunning the course itself yeah. looked okay, but I don't remember many of the, the holes. Yeah. But the location of it is awesome. I played in Sandpoint, which is where Sarah Palin was born. Oof. Sandpoint, Idaho. You Mid played there? Middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. on a holiday. Uh, and that's where she's from. So I asked this they question give a, They to... give you a free gun on the first tee. <laughs> A shotgun start. Oh, <laughs> nice. So I asked oh, this question to God. our social media followers, and actually, 
they came through. <laughs> Mikey Boy with an H. Mikey oh, Boy. <laughs> Mikey, Mikey Boy, boy. listen to this. He played Clubul Diplomatique in Bucharest in Romania. Romania, 20 million people and only 10 golf courses. It's only got six holes, so you had to go around three times. But Mikey says, it's a terrible course. The greens were like fairways over here. <laughs> I was working there and I took my clubs. 100% not worth the hassle. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Kennedy played, oh hey, in Ghana, Takaradi. Piss golf off, course, really? Supposedly. Dan Jackson played at the Himalayan Golf Club in Nepal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Harry, just given that he's only got one name like Seal. Harry played Anchorage Golf Course and Moose Run in Alaska Amazing. last summer. Brilliant. That's awesome. Christopher Oldroyd, Mzuzu Golf Club in northern Malawi. There were sand greens, people crossing the course constantly, and I had a group of eight random kids following me around. Superb. These people are much more interesting than Way we are. Way more interesting. Listen to this from John Halliday. Russia in the mid-90s was a strange experience, Pfft, I'll say. But I played in Egypt in 2011 on a course where their president at the time was being kept under armed guard by the Egyptian army. <laughs> there were a hundred armed guards and I was the only person on the golf course. Superb. Graham Hardy in Malongo, Angola. A Chevron oilfield camp golf course. It was surrounded by gas flares that were burning. Concrete greens covered with astroturf made for hilarious bouncing golf balls. Johnny Pringle started playing golf at a course in Tegucigalpa. Do you know where that is? Are you being serious? Tegucigalpa is the capital of Honduras. Started playing there, Johnny, in the 90s. A Twitter account, Falcon Golf Arabia. Now, we spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. Went into Kabul Golf Club. Oh, yeah. oh really? But I didn't have the courage to get out of the vehicle. We're going to need more details. Send us more details. We need to know. Martin Reagan played midnight golf in the Arctic Circle in Bodo in Norway. It was May and didn't get dark. So teed off at 10pm yeah, and finished at 2am. Amazing. couple more. Keith Barrett played at Stanley Golf Course in the Falkland Islands. Out of bounds fences, warning of unexploded mines and shell craters as hazards. Nah, you wouldn't catch me on that. And finally, Johnny Neeson played Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea back in the 1980s. On one hole, we played off the red tee instead of the blue one, which was back in the forest. When I asked why, my host said, it's too dangerous. Last week, some members were threatened and robbed in there by machete-wielding locals. Well, I think I'll pass on that one. So Papua New Guinea to the bottom of the list. Yeah, I think. that's like playing at Knightswood in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> Royal Knightswood, thank you very much. <laughs> there you go, though. Golf, a truly global game. Yeah, it makes you want to go out and play golf, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Just not in Papua New Guinea. Definitely not Papua New Guinea. I think I could probably go without Egypt as well, by the sounds of things. Mzuzu Golf Club in Malawi sounds great yeah. fun. So but I think if I, if I can get myself to Swaziland, that's, that'll be the that'll be the dream. Yes. I had a look at some of the pictures of these courses as well. Go back and check them out. They are genuinely brilliant looking, uh, some of them. Amazing. So, awesome stuff. Thank you to everyone that uh, got in touch with us and told us about the strangest places they've played. And if you haven't, send us details. We'd love to know more. I certainly, certainly, certainly want to know more about Kabul Golf Club in Afghanistan, I think it is. Anyway, that is just about it for this week. Bryce, anything exciting on the horizon this week for you? 
But that's a no. 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 Excellent. I'll see you back here in a week's time where we can <laughs> discuss the great week that you've had, the memorable week. Thank you, as always, for your time. Thank you, Callaway, for your continued support. And thank you to you for listening. Without you, it's just the two of us talking in a cupboard for an hour and a half every week, which would be a bit pointless. So that is it for us this week. We'll be back this time next week. Until then, bye-bye for now.